All right, have a seat. We thank you for coming this morning, wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith. We are glad that you are here. This is a great place for all of us, wherever we are, to get our questions about the Christian faith asked and answered. We are now in the heavy part of the Christmas season. And so we are finished our Galatians series and we are going to focus on the season of Advent. Advent means arrival and it, it signifies the arrival of God in the person of Jesus into human history. And so if you have a bulletin, you may focus or if you have a bulletin online, you may go to the reading. It's also on the back panel of your uh, paper bulletin. We are going to be reading from John chapter one to uh, reflect upon this morning and here to help us with the reading, Josiah. So John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. In the, beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a, mon- there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born... Not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've come to that wondrous season we call Christmas when we celebrate the interruption into our lives, the invasion into our broken, cynical world of love, light, hope, and Hallmark movies. (laughs) If you've noticed, the W Network is now showing Hallmark movies nonstop. Every TV station seems to be playing It's a Wonderful Life or You've Got Mail while you were sleeping. Some families like us do Lord of the Rings marathons. It's no secret that Star Wars has timed the release of its latest movie to the Christmas season because it's the season when we like to escape from the brokenness of our world of Western Canadian alienation, presidential impeachment, riots in Hong Kong, troubles everywhere into a world of an imagination that our hearts long for. A world of myths that can give meaning to our lives and can release our souls into hope. We long for the stories that bring redemption into a world that needs it, that gives meaning to lives that are empty, that gives us a future that could be glorious and purposeful. That's why these myths grab us. That's why all the great myths of almost all of the cultures talk in these ways, about a great ruler who ruled the world in wisdom and all the people were flourishing. And then that ruler, for reasons that differ, left 
or was deposed or died and the world fell into darkness or shadow or sadness. They are myths that call for redemption and we have souls that long for redemption. And there's a reason for all of that. And there's a reason it has such an uptick at Christmas because the story of Christmas is the original myth story. It's the story of God invading our broken, tired, dark, corrupted world. The God who created the universe beyond all time and space has stepped down, taken upon himself a human nature, and become not like one of us, but truly one of us, that he may be one with us. At the heart of Christmas is a myth, a myth of infinite love, except unlike the other myths, This one's true. And because it's true, it can transform us. And it can transform us so that we can behold God's glory. That's the point of John chapter 1. It gives us at least three things. We could spend weeks looking at this text, but it's Christmas. You want a nice Hallmark sermon? I'm going to give you one. (laughs) John 1 tells us about a true myth we can believe in. A myth we can believe, a God we can receive, a glory we can behold. Those are our three points. A myth we can believe, a God we can receive, a glory we can behold. A myth we can believe. Look at the first few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This sounds wonderful. There's a God up there. But look at the second last, um, at the last two lines of your passage. And the word that was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt among us. There's the myth. And then we love our myths, as we said. We love the stories of a great king who has left but is coming back to make all things right. We love the stories of Arthur, of Aragorn. We love the ideas that they represent. Even the Avengers Endgame, I submit to you, sort of has that kind of basic plot line with a twist. It's not a king. It's a bunch of altruistic superheroes, most of whom got knocked off by Thanos like a movie ago, but magically resurrected, right, by some space-time continuing thing that the directors or the screenwriters found, and suddenly they're all back. And of course, they beat Thanos at the end, but there's the great tragic sacrifice as Iron Man gives his life for the rescue of the world. See, we love these myths. Hmm? Star Wars. Okay, if you haven't seen Star Wars, don't give me, don't give it away. Don't give me any spoiler, please. But aren't we all hoping that Luke will redeem? Or okay, Luke's whatever, Ray. I'm sure Ray's connected to somebody in there. Right? We're going to redeem the world, right? Actually, I'm just hoping the movie will be watchable based on previous Star Wars. I'm sorry, but the last few have been just terrible. (laughs) But we're hoping for those stories because we love these myths. But what if one of them was true? All scholars admit that there was someone named Jesus who walked the earth. It's unquestioned now in scholarly historiography. Uh, 
The Jewish historian Josephus, writing about a generation after his death, recounts how the followers claimed he was the Messiah and that he was hung on a tree by crucifixion. Albert Einstein, asked if he believed in the historical Jesus, replied this, No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. He's right. History records that Jesus lived and that he died. And history records that he rose again. In a remarkable book called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective, an Orthodox Jewish scholar, Pinchas Lapid, examined carefully the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from a Jewish perspective and concluded this. I now accept the resurrection of Easter Sunday not as an invention of the community of disciples, but as a historical event. If the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on that Easter Sunday were a public event which had been known which had been made known back then not only to the 530 Jewish witnesses but to the entire population all Jews would have become followers of Jesus he really rose from the dead this myth is true J.R.R. Tolkien one of the great mythmakers of our culture put it this way The gospel is that the underlying reality and truth that all good stories glimpse and give you joy when reading them has actually broken into history. It is the one myth that is fact, and it underlies all the other myths. Tolkien is saying every hallmark story of love and loss and redemption, every great myth of rescue by a return of a king to make things right, is based on this one true myth, that God, the ultimate king, came back. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. Look at the passage. It opens with these words, in the beginning. It's a deliberate wordplay on the words that begin the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, it says God created the heavens and the earth here in the beginning was the word. It wants you to go back to that scene and say, remember the scene in Genesis 1 when God was creating the world? You missed something. The angle of the lens wasn't wide enough. Widened the lens. Someone was there with God the Father. Jesus the word was with him, helping him create. All things were created through him. He was in the beginning with God. He was there. He was doing it with God equally. God the Father and God the Son were in the beginning. Not a great king, but the great God. The ruler and sustainer and maker of heaven and earth is this Jesus, infinite in perfection and beauty, immortal, all wise, all good, all beautiful, all loving, the God of all gods, the one true God is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God the Son is the great King who not only created the world but came to rescue the world. He makes every great king in every human myth pale in comparison because he came down not from his throne, but from heaven itself, from infinitude to finitude, from omniscience to human knowledge, 
from all power to human frailty and weakness. And the question remains, why did he come? And that gets us to our second point. He came so that he can be a God you can receive. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It talks about John in verse 6 being a witness about the light, but not being the light himself. And then verse 9 picks up the thread of the argument again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. First repeated word and idea here is light. The second one we'll get to, it's receive. It's in the next few verses. The first repeated key word is light. Jesus is the light of the world. What does that mean? It means two things. Firstly, he is the one who reveals the world as it is. He explains the world. Tim Keller put it this way. He's the hidden chapter in the book about the history of the world where where the whole plot must have this chapter to come together. Without this missing chapter, we don't understand the world, where it came from, what it is, and where it's going. I kind of get that. I don't know. Some of you were old enough to watch the TV show Lost when it came out. And if you haven't, it's a Netflix binge-worthy show, one of the most confusing and addictive TV shows of all time. But, you know, it seemed to be moving rather slowly, so I skipped a couple, and then I came back in after missing about two or three episodes, thinking, you know, I'll just hang out with Sue and everyone else who's addicted to it, and I'll watch it and make my comments. And I was completely clued. What the heck happened here? There's a capsule. They've broken in. There's some, it's, is this a machine, this planet? People are being resurrected. New people are coming. I was lost. In lost. Life's like that. Life doesn't make sense. We're now at the highest level of technological innovation. We're at the highest level of human education. We know more than any culture in history about everything. So why is there still so much suffering? Why can't we figure out a way to keep our governments out of debt? Why is there so much inequality? Why is there so much racism, sex, name the isms? Why are there so many poor people? Why are there so many broken people? Why do we keep electing leaders we don't trust, don't respect, and don't like? Why? We still seem to be lost and in the dark. So John says, Jesus is the light who reveals what's going on. The hidden chapter that much of history has missed. He explains why the world is the way it is. And let's get to that second meaning of light because that's the explanation. Jesus is the light and the world is in darkness. And what John means by darkness here is the world is in rebellion against God. We need somebody's help because we've lost our way, because we've walked away from God. You see, the first chapters that this refers to talk about how we were created by God for God. We were meant to live in the light of his love and in his presence. Tim Keller once put it this way, God is like the sun and we were like planets meant to orbit around him, draw light and heat and nourishment from him. But we fled his presence and we went our own way. We spun out of orbit and now we drift like a planet with no orbit, lost, adrift, unloved, unhomed. 
fallen into shadow, corruption, moral and spiritual darkness. That's where we are. That explains why, despite all of our achievements, we're still stuck. The story does not end there. God came down to find us, to rescue us from the darkness of the sin in our lives, from the darkness of the blindness we have to who we really are and who we should be. He came into the darkness of our world to bring us the light of the presence of God in us. That's why he came, to be our light. And we get that light by the second word, receiving him. That's the second key word here, and it captures the rest of the verses in that paragraph. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that's what it means to receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born of God. You see, we get this light, this presence of God as a gift to be received like you receive Christmas presents because God gives it freely as an act of generous grace. This is the essence of Christmas. You celebrate the gift of God himself, his son, and you receive the gift. You see, the text is clear. Jesus came to be received. He came to his own people, the Jewish people. Most of them did not receive him. They were trained to look for something different in their Messiah, so they did not recognize him as such. This chapter looked totally out of place in Israel's history because their Messiah, as they understood the Torah, was supposed to bring restoration to the Jewish people, freedom from political oppression from Rome, peace on earth, and great reign of Israel among the nations. Jesus brought none of those, at least not then, though he will later. You see, Jesus wasn't, when he first came, on a mission that was Israel-centric, He was on a cosmic mission to restore all of creation. That's why here he is the creator God and his work is the recreation. He came down firstly to pay for the sins of all peoples, not just Jewish people. He came to be the Messiah, the rescuer, the savior of the world. He fulfilled the promise God made to Abraham, who said, and he said to Abraham, through your offspring, that is Jesus, all of the earth shall be blessed So in the Old Testament, there is the promise of a cosmic redeemer, not just for the Jewish people. And one day, not immediately, but one day, he will bring full peace, full restoration, full healing to the whole earth. And John says, some people got it. They did receive him. They recognized him as the son of God, as God's own beloved son, as the Messiah as the divine Savior come to rescue not just Israel, but everyone from the alienation and the estrangement and the lostness we have from God. Jesus, like a long-lost relative filled with infinite gifts of grace and mercy of love, has come, and he says, Receive me. Welcome me into your life, and I will welcome you back into the family you were originally made to be part of. Now, receiving someone means allowing them to disrupt your life. When we adopted our daughter, our wonderful little independent life was slightly disrupted. (laughs) Any of you who've ever had your first child knows how disruptive the first child is in your life. 
You don't have your sleep patterns anymore. You don't have your solitude patterns. You just can't go wherever you want to go all the time anymore. This little thing, sleep schedule and burp schedule and poop schedule, it, it now changes everything. But it's the disruption that gladdens and enriches your life. Receiving Christ is like that. You are receiving someone into your life. But this someone isn't a baby. This is God himself coming in. And he comes in as God saying, I get a blank check to disrupt whatever I want. To reconfigure whatever I wish. Because I know better what will make you flourish than you do. So come, give me your life. Let me enter in and I will reconfigure it for your blessing. Not your control, your joy. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to receive him? Are you willing to receive undeserved grace, total forgiveness of everything wrong you've ever done? It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Are you willing to receive that and give up your right to rule your life? He comes in as God, the ruler, the creator. You give up your right to control and you receive eternal life, forgiveness, and fellowship with God. He's the myth you can believe. He's the God you can receive. Finally, he's the glory you can behold. Glory, the word is almost obsolete now in our very sort of democratic and egalitarian social justice world. Glory sounds quite elitist, but actually we crave glory and we know it. Look at the bucket list vacations Torontonians like to go to. Look at the pictures that fill your social media, the Grand Canyon, these incredible mountains all over the world, the beaches all over the world. What are we craving? Beauty, transcendent glory. That that's what we feel we need and want. And that's what defines God. If there's a word that takes all of the excellencies, all the love and the joy and the holiness and the beauty of God and mashes them together into one word, that word is glory. Infinitely wondrous excellence in every dimension. And it says here, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now, if you're Jewish, and you're an Old Testament Jewish person who's reading this, at the time that it was written, glory is a little traumatic for you, because if you know your Jewish history, glory is the potent attributes of God that when touching human selfishness, self-absorption, and sin creates a highly toxic for us interaction. It's fatal, actually. God told Moses, you cannot see my face and live. I'm too potent for you. My glory is too much. The intensity of my holiness is too much. My love for goodness and righteousness and love and the intensity of my displeasure at sinfulness and selfishness and oppression and wrong, when that intense, potent me comes into contact with corrupt self-absorbed you, you will not survive it. So why, when Jesus came, were we able to not only see but survive the glory of God? Because Jesus was God's glory, clothed 
in God's grace. Glory clothed in grace. God become human. God come down in human form so we could see him and not die. God, more than that, become a baby so we could abuse him and get away with it. Vulnerable he was, susceptible to colds and jaundice, being hurt and abused he was. Who can imagine a God who would allow himself to be that vulnerable, who would love enough to open himself up this much? You see, there's a particular glory in this that we rarely see but actually love. If you were uh, online this week, you saw a video go viral. It it may only be to the sports-loving people, but LeBron James showed up (laughs) at a pizza joint (laughs) behind the pizza, making like Pizza Nova pizza with the rest of the guys, you know, in uniform. Undercover, they called it. Yeah, 6'9", LeBron, undercover, forget about it. I mean, immediately they knew. But people love the idea that someone as great and glorious as LeBron would stoop down to be a regular pizza nova, you know, minimum wage earning guy for a day. Well, they loved it so much there were like three camera crews recording every moment of it, so it wasn't quite as selfless as it sounds. <laughs> what LeBron was doing that we enjoyed is just the imitation of what Jesus actually did with no cameras there for branding, the eternal God came down and became a baby. The angels saw it and rejoiced, and shepherds heard them saying it's true. But he came quietly to a little backwater colony of Rome, to an oppressed Jewish people groaning under the weight of their servitude. He came as an infant and grew into a carpenter, a humble trade for a humble man. He learned to shape wood, to make chairs and tables. His hands grew calloused and coarse. His body ached from the toil. He became a man who shaped wood to his purposes and the flourishing of his customers. And then this God become man, this carpenter around his 30th year, finally unveiled to the world who he was. He told people about the love and grace of God. He healed people to show he'd come to bring an end to death and disease one day. He cast out demons to show he was more powerful than the most powerful evil forces anywhere. He was God become man. And then he was man become sin. He chose a path of suffering and rejection knowing he had a price to pay. Not his own price but ours. The price of our debt to God incurred by our moral wrong, yours and mine. He had to pay the debt of our sins. He had the people to pay for. Jewish people understood the need to atone for their sins. They killed animals all year long and shed their blood because they knew that God needed something to pay for the moral wrong that separated them from him. And Jesus said, I will be the final atonement offering. I will pay for the wrong of every sin that you and others have committed. That's why I became human to become a substitute, to become a stand in, to take the bullet for us. I had to remain sinless, so I didn't have my own sin to pay for. I had to become fully human to be able to pay for yours. And pay for ours, he did. This carpenter who spent his life shaping wood 
to his hands for the flourishing of his customers at the end of his life allowed his body to be shaped to wood for the salvation of his people. Allowing himself to be tried, tortured, crucified, and nailed to two cross planks of wood to a tree, he died. And therein we see the full glory of God. We behold the glory of a God, not a God who sits in the solitude of untouchable perfection indifferent to us, not a God of judgment and anger who simply frowns and thunders against us who have rebelled against him, though rebels we surely are, but a God who comes down in love, in humility, in suffering, in compassion, to take our burdens, our guilt from us, to come and take it and say, let me take this for you and let me die for you that you may be sons and daughters of my Father. Now accept my gift. Accept me. Accept that my glory can come inside of you. Allow the glory that scares you now thrill you because the thing that made it traumatic My holiness confronting your sin now has a covering, my grace. Where is your sin now? It's gone. It has been removed. Where is your sin now? It was paid for. God remembers it no more. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. When you receive Christ, you behold the glory of God. You enter into the presence of God. The light of the presence of God fills you through his Holy Spirit who indwells you and he sheds the light of the glory of God in you. C.S. Lewis put it this way. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in As an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. That's glory. Feeling God's pleasure in himself now be poured out upon you. And I submit to you, we all need that glory. We all groan for that glory. All of our living, all of this city, all of the beauty that we see in our life still leaves us groaning and unsatisfied. It leaves us wanting more than it can ever give us. Why? Because we were made for a glory the world does not possess. Only God does. We made in the image of God were made to gaze upon infinite beauty without fear, infinite joy without guilt, infinite goodness without regret, to see God and then to have God invite us into the glory he has in himself. Famous Puritan theologian John Flavel had this illustration. He says, why are your emotions and mind unsatisfied by all the things that you have here? Because you bring a great ship into a very narrow channel and she cannot sail, but she runs aground. But give that ship enough sea room and depth and she sails like the wind. And so it is with you. All that delights you on earth can never satisfy you. The comforts you have here are only drops, inflaming but not satisfying the appetites of your soul. 
but the Lamb of God will lead you to fountains of living water. Men and women, this is who we are. Unsatisfied by our world, starving for real glory. The glory that is in God, the glory that came down in Jesus to be believed, to be received, to be enjoyed. I will give C.S. Lewis the last word. The sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality. This is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense I describe becomes highly relevant to our deep desire for glory means acceptance by God, a response, an acknowledgement, a welcome into the heart of things, the door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. If you're here and you don't yet call yourself a Christian, the door upon which your soul is knocking is that same door that Christ is knocking on to have you open to receive him. Experience the glory for the first time. Receive Christ. Receive forgiveness. Receive glory. If you're here and you're a Christian and you need to re-experience the glory, remember this myth is true. This God is in you. This forgiveness is yours. This delight of God is truly yours. Rejoice. The King has come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us and your delight and the greatness of your infinite mercy in Christ. We ask now that you, in the greatness of your grace, would help us to experience your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Questions. Uh, I've got some questions that have been texted in. Uh, you may also text them in or put up your hand. I uh, always give those who want to put up their hand and ask questions first choice. So if you have that kind of courage, uh, I'll take a moment and look for hands. If you're just stretching, don't worry, I won't call upon you. But if your hand is up, I will allow you the floor first. Okay, we'll go to our questions. What if Christmas is painful? How does gospel speak to suffering at Christmas? That's a great question. For the first uh, 20 odd years, for me, Christmas was mostly painful. And I, I wasn't really suffering externally that much. But I, I felt alienated from my family at times and didn't understand why we were talking about all this stuff. And I spent a couple of Christmases in real deeper suffering over loss of loved ones, etc. And I can only say that suffering and God are the, the, those two. They struggle to go together, don't they? How can a good God allow suffering? And I think it's the question, if you're a skeptic, that is one of the hardest for us to answer. But I say to you, as, as tough as it, as it is to answer Christianity, 
I think, has one of the most powerful answers. Because God came into human history to suffer. That was his purpose. To suffer rejection by men and then rejection by God so that men don't need and women don't need to be rejected. You see, the Son of Man came as a suffering servant. And so the glory of Christmas is the suffering and dying and substituting of Jesus for us. And so if Christmas is painful for you, remember the pain of God in sending his son, the bereaving of God in allowing his son to be rejected and know that you are not alone in your feelings, but God is with you there. He knows your suffering for he suffers with you and for you? Great question. We have no more questions. So I will go to the table of suffering and glory. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, his last meal with his disciples had bread on the table, and he broke the bread. And he said, this bread is my body, which is given for you. What he meant is his body was going to be broken in death as a substitutionary offering to pay for their sin. A little while later, to reinforce that idea, he picked up a cup of wine, which was part of the meal, and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he said of the bread and of the wine, do this in memory of me. Because he always wanted us regularly to rehearse the reality that no matter how broken we are, No matter how broken our life is, no matter how broken our world is, it is not a forgotten world. God has not forgotten us. God has invaded our world with his son. And he will come back to restore things. But his grace is for you. This Christmas, let us remember the word became flesh and then allowed his flesh to be broken and poured out. There is no Christmas without understanding it ends at Easter. But there is no Easter without him first coming at Christmas. They are one story of God becoming flesh that we may partake of him for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you. I pray now that this meal would be a meal of thanksgiving for us. And this meal would be a meal of rejoicing for us. And this meal would be a meal of experiencing your particular sacrificial glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple of words of uh, orientation. If you're a baptized believer in Christ, this meal is for you. It's not just for Grace Toronto members. If you are not yet a Christian, we ask that you pass the meal by. Allow it to go through the pews um, and just read out the prayers that are in the bulletin. The bread is gluten-free and the wine is darker than the grape juice. The table is open.